Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zorja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown University and George Washington University. And I'm joined today only by... Only by Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and our colleague Dalibor Rohach uh, has better things to do this morning, apparently. <laughs> On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and today we have a special guest, um, Yevgeny Simkin, who is the founder of um, a new project um, and also um, a contributing writer to Bulwark. Um, but his new project is called Samizdat Online. And uh, we want to learn more from him about his project and about, um, and about Russian audiences and the challenges um, to reaching them and the challenges to their I guess political ideology, but maybe as a as a clarification for those not as deeply immersed into Eastern European studies, Samistad um, used to be the clandestine copying and distribution of literature banned by the states um, in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. And so, Yevgeny, over to you in telling us what Samizdat Online is, what you're trying to do, and who you're working with. Uh, thank you. Uh, so first of all, thank you so much for uh, hosting me. And uh, this is actually the first time that I'm speaking uh, anywhere about this. Uh, so I'm... It's all downhill from here. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Uh, just very, very grateful that you uh, folks are exposing us to the world. So the project came to me as uh, sort of an epiphany when I was uh, in, in the wake of the invasion and the war. Um, I was trying to figure out what I can do to help. Uh, in most situations, most of us want to help all sorts of situations, right? Somebody has cancer and you want to help. There's all sorts of oppression and you want to help. Well, what can you do? You give money to charities and you hope for the best. Uh, but I'm just very strangely positioned kind of serendipitously because I have this engineering team that's in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, many of my engineers are in Russia, some are in Ukraine. I'm also somewhat connected to the world of journalism. Again, total serendipity because I didn't go to school for journalism. I was a technologist at CBS News back in the, early, uh, in the late 90s. So my thought was, well, what can I do to undermine what Putin is doing? And well, why not just take my cue from Putin? He seems to be... Uh, critically engaged in uh, trying to block his national audience from seeing all sorts of reality. And if that's important to him, then it must be important to undermine that. <laughs> and, and then as it turned out, uh, he, he turned out to be completely incompetent, as we now see, at everything other than his propaganda machinery, which you know, would make Goebbels blush. But, but uh, so I, I feel like we've really hit on something where if we can undermine his ability to protect the citizens of Belarus and Russia from, uh, you know, from the, the content that would show them what is really going on, uh, then that would potentially be helpful. And I, I don't have any naive notions that, you know, people will have the scales fall from their eyes and instantly say, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. We're, we're Putin's the monster and we have to, you know, but this takes time. 
uh, the reason that I named it after Samizdat, as you mentioned, is because the only way this can work ultimately is for those people in Russia who do understand what's happening to slowly turn their co-citizens' eyes to the truth, um, which is a, you know, it's a painful slog, but I'm arming them with a the technology to do that. So, uh, so the specifics of what we're doing different, like people frequently, the first retort uh, when people hear about what we're doing is, well, uh, there's already VPN, right? So what's the, what, what's the problem? People who want to reach this content, they can just fire up a VPN and go and look at whatever they want to look at. And that's true. Uh, but VPN is an active technology. It's something that somebody has to want to do, right? Like the, you have to know to want to install it and then know what content you're actually trying to get to. What we do is we allow those people who, who are already reaching out for content that they want to see, well, what we create are these very ambiguous looking links to that content, which they can send to anybody who doesn't have VPN, who is not looking for anything. They can post it in their social media. They can email it. They can do whatever they want with these links. Anyone in the world with access to the internet can click on these links and get to the content, right? So, so this creates this Samizdat mechanism where people will go and find content that the, they find relevant or interesting or poignant. Uh, we, in fact, are going to be assembling this content for them. We're going to be a news aggregator so we can bring all of the most, what we think are the most pertinent and, and interesting stories to the front and let them distribute them amongst themselves. That sounds pretty amazing because we've had um, on this podcast and beyond conversations over the last few months and, and even longer than that about the issue of VPN, that people who don't want to go out of their way but you want to influence to get the information to them, as you say, um, is um, are, are not downloading VPN or don't even know how to. Um, and so by giving them, I guess, giving them a link, I don't know why nobody thought about this until you, um, by giving them a link that is easily ac accessible, you can distribute content which is usually how even propaganda works nowadays, as we've observed um, inside and outside of Russia. Um, what happens is that these links to propaganda, Russian propaganda, are being distributed via WhatsApp groups or um, via email threads from one person to another. And so this seems to be the way to click um, to click into into the right content too, um, from from what you're telling me. So, do you, what are the challenges? I mean, uh, technically, we're not talented here. <laughs> Our audience, um, or at least us, um, we're we're. Living. We should explain what a virtual private network is. I guess so. Yeah, if you can tell us a little bit in easy terms, sort of, or or layman terms about what um, VPN is and what the challenges are in, in creating these links? Yeah, sure. Well, actually, before we discuss VPN, if we're discussing this, uh, I'll, I'll do a 15-second explanation of how the whole internet works. Please, please. <laughs> <laughs> or doesn't. Well, no, it actually mostly works. Ironically, it hasn't really changed how it works in the last 30 years. There, and that actually contributes to why it's reasonably easy for us to do what we're doing, because the internet is a very static technology. So uh, the way that the internet generally works in very broad terms is that you register a domain name, right? So you're facebook.com or you're the New York times.com or whatever, whatever it is. And that name is associated with an IP address. Uh, again, I won't, I won't go into details, but it's an, it's a numeric address that tells the whole internet where your server actually is. 
And so uh, this name and IP address uh, association is distributed by what is known as DNS, Dynamic Name Service, across the globe. And these copies of these associations exist over, over and over and over again, everywhere across the globe. So when you sit, sit at home, wherever you are, you type in nytimes.com and first thing that your computer does is reaches out to the nearest DNS server and says, where is this nytimes.com thing, right? It's just looking in a table for the address. Now, if you happen to be Vladimir Putin and you control all your DNS machines in your region, you can have the Ruskomanzor, which that's the name, that Ruskomanzor, that's the name. That sounds like a video game name, right? <laughs> You're looking for a villain name for yourself. <laughs> that's right. uh, so this, this uh, group, uh, they just cleanse the roles in the, their DNS machines of all of the domain names that they don't wish their citizens to reach. Uh, which is a you know that's a lot of work, but they do it, and then uh, so if you're in this region where these names no longer exist in your local tables, when you type in nytimes.com, you get a DNS error which says I don't know what this domain name is. Uh, so that's how the internet works. Uh, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> so, um, so what VPN is? VPN is kind of a little bit of a magic trick where your computer connects before it connects to anything else it gets a specific ip address again which is which is somewhere else right so this ip this is an ip address for a machine that's in a non-autocratic area i mean you could be anywhere but the point is that you connect to a machine that's in say you know london and then then your computer pretends that it's in london and and so now when you type in newyorktimes.com you're reaching out to a dns machine that's in london because that's what's closest to you and in london there's no problem with finding the newyorktimes.com and then subsequently you get to the New York Times.com and you are able to to read it. So so it's essentially a like a tunnel out from where you are to somewhere else where you could actually reach the content that you're looking for. So uh, does the Russian regime or do they try to control access to VPNs? There's been talk about it. And again, I, I want to be clear that I'm not an expert on most of this, right? I'm, I'm not. A, a, you're you're a, way above us. So, well, you know, well so I, I understand the technology. You're not an expert, but you can play one on this podcast. I can pretend, of course. Uh, I'm not a policy expert. So I, I, I know what you guys know in terms of reading the news, right? My understanding is that they have been uh, looking to uh, block some of these VPNs. But the thing is that that's much harder to do because VPNs are just, they're just numeric addresses that could be moved around very easily. So uh, that that's a pretty big undertaking to try and pre prevent people from getting out from under the, the their you know from from around this kind of blockade. As you were saying earlier, VPN requires sort of active and and uh, educated uh, computer skills on the part of the individual user, and you're trying to turn that equation around a little bit and and bring free information to a broader audience or make it more accessible. Can you talk about that? Uh, uh, one more time. And also, um, if you're going to be an aggregator, wh where do you reckon you're going to get your content? Or is it just going to be, uh, I mean, somebody's going to have to do the editorial function of figuring out what to make available on any particular day? I'll start with the second part first. We actually already have an editorial staff. We have some incredibly talented um, editorial people. But yes, the, the notion is that th there is some really an incredible number of publications that are now blocked by the Ruskomanzor uh, in, in Russia and in Belarus, now in Ukraine as well. 
Uh, and of course, in the West, right? I mean, they, they block the BBC, they block the Telegraph, block Bellingcat. They, I mean, the list is really, really long. Endless, probably. Well, interestingly, it's not endless. Our first, uh, I'm going to digress for a second. We initially unblocked uh, the New York Times because it's just the easiest thing to do. At some point, we realized that the New York Times actually isn't blocked, right? And we had to scratch our heads and say, why not? And it, and then we realized it's because most Russians don't speak English and the Ru- and the New York Times does not have a Russian edition. So they're they're perfectly happy to let the you know the, the Russians reach the New York Times all the, to, to, their, to their heart's content. Also, the New York Times is behind a paywall, which the Russians can't pay for. So like literally can't. It's not that they can't afford it. There's no mechanism by which they can make the payment. So 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 in effect, the New York Times themselves are blocking themselves from this Russian audience. The the notion is that we are uh, no longer doing anything willy nilly as we were initially because all of this spun up very quickly. And so we are, in fact, contacting all the publications that we uh, deem to uh, syndicate. Uh, and getting their permission. Uh, amazingly, all of them have been incredibly enthusiastic, almost in tears with joy about the fact that, like one quote I have is uh, a writer spe- saying to their editor, finally, somebody other than my editor will be able to read my work again. Uh, right? That, that, that was a very endearing quote. Um, so um, we are going to be going through all of these publications, right? Of, of which, again, there's dozens. And so our editors will seek out the, you know, five or six, 10, however many, of uh, the stories that they think are the, the, the most relevant because these publications, most of them are not, uh, they're not strictly speaking political publications. They're just liberal publications, right? So they, they have lots of information that, you know, m- maybe a very limited interest to the, the broad audience and have nothing to do with this, this you know, this whole um, situation, <laughs> if call it that. The special operation. <laughs> It's a very, very special operation. Not to say that our uh, intention is to focus exclusively on that, but but the point is that we are going to have our own editorial mind, as a, as it were, where we will be picking the stories that we think are the most interesting, and 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 then just aggregating them in a in a in a location that's going to look just like any other news site. People hopefully will come to us to um, just find interesting things to read, and um, and not just read. We're gonna you know have all sorts of media. Yeah, you're hereby granted access to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, we, will, we will gladly post it. Well, actually, so so the one caveat is we, we kind of made this decision that we're only going to post things that are, in fact, blocked because we've had some people reach out to us to say, hey, could you please include us? And uh, like, first of all, it costs a, a lot of money to to do this, right? Money, which we currently don't have. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> but um, but the point is that the center, centering it around what is currently blocked makes it very easy for us not to have to do any of our own decision making as to what's worthy, what's not worthy. We let the autocrats decide what's worthy, right? Like if they say that it shouldn't be seen by their citizens, then then it should be. That's that's really the way that we uh, operate. That seems like the logical step. Now, before we get into policy, because I do want to ask you about that. I know you're not an expert, but but we're interested in in um, in people's opinions about what is going on. But before that, um, you told us a little bit just before we started recording, and um, I would love to for you to talk about this in terms of your project, the first few months of the invasion, and how you um, have colleagues and people working for you that were in Ukraine, um, in Belarus, in uh, in Russia, and what the challenges have been um, around that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because we're always looking for 
historic, um, uh, heroic uh, um, uh, stories about what is going on right now um, with people and restricting not just access to information, but also their movement. Yeah, of course. So yeah, as I mentioned, I fell into this entirely serendipitously. I am a technologist and, uh, and originally I was a comedian and a musician. So, uh, so everything I do is done with some amount of uh, whimsy and, and, and you could be president of a country. That's right. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, my own story is actually very similar to that of Sergey Brin. Uh, like we, we, we basically the same age basically came to the States in the same exact circumstances. So I could, I could potentially be also worth, you know, $50 billion, but I'm not. That's, that's, okay. That so choices have to be $50 billion <laughs> or however many he has. Um, so, yeah. so um, but yeah, that, my my own involvement in this is is that I have this software company, and as of about six years ago, I've been recruiting and employing uh, Eastern European engineers who are very talented and with whom I speak the same language, thanks to my grandparents and parents who insisted that I did not lose my language when I came to this country at the age of seven. Um, so I'm fluent in Russian and, and I have these guys scattered throughout Eastern Europe. And when Putin invaded Ukraine, uh, it suddenly became fundamentally important to me to find out where exactly they are and what I can do to help them. And it turned out that, uh, so there's about 25 of them and it turned out that just about evenly half and half they're split between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we have one guy in Belarus. Uh, this became just an immediate problem on two fronts. One was how to help my Ukrainian engineers in any way I could. Uh, and it turned out that there's really nothing I can do. I offered a couple of them who were far in the West uh, to bring their families here, and they both politely declined. Um, all the other ones were actually in the East where they um, had been engaged, like th th their situation hadn't actually materially changed at the beginning of the war. Now it's actually more precarious because now they're living under... Uh, constant duress. And then the, the guys in Russia, they desperately wanted to leave Russia. Uh, so I was helping them move out to Georgia, etc. Some of them couldn't move out They're They're too deep in Russia. Um, it, it, so there was, anyway, it became a, an, an immediate uh, problem on all fronts. I don't know that I can really speak to any heroism as such. All these people are very average people who wish none of this was happening. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, to the extent to which I'm familiar with their politics, uh, none of them are fans of Putin, and uh, and uh, they, you know, they're being hit pretty hard by the sanctions. We've had to find all sorts of creative ways to pay this, the 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 few guys that remain in Russia, because in spite of the fact that it's uh, very politically incorrect to do so, I can't just abandon them to to uh, their fates uh, just because they happen to be on that side of a border. I wonder, as sort of a pivot point, if we could begin. Um... Uh, and if you could help for our audience describe the sort of nature and extent of Russia's internal sort of propaganda campaign. We get, at least English speakers here, you can get snippets of it on Twitter and stuff like that. Um, so it's possible to get, uh, you know, a, a, a tiny flavor of it. And of course, it's incredibly appalling and violent and nationalistic and so on and so forth, but it's very difficult to get from, you know, a Twitter feed, a real sense of the extent of the domestic information campaign uh, that the regime is, is waging. That obviously was kind of a motivator for you to, to even undertake the project. But if you could give me 
your assessment or give us your assessment of uh, who the enemy are in this regard. That would be real useful, I think. Yeah, for sure. So as it turns out, uh, I was under the impression that uh, the propaganda is mostly news propaganda. I had this kind of um, almost caricature of an Orwellian TV screen on the wall with, uh, you know, a general covered in, in, in ordnance, in medals, uh, j just, you know, w wagging his finger about how, you know, Biden bad, NATO bad, Putin good all day long. As it turns out, that's not how it works. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they being the population, have been absolutely steeped in nonsense and, and lies for many, many years. Uh, and, and that nonsense and lies is sprinkled in very studious and non-pervasive way. I mean, pervasive in the sense that it's, it happens all the time, but it happens in between all of the very high quality entertainment media content that they get exposed to, which in and of itself is not propagandistic, right? It's, it's sports and, and, and music and, and comedy and, and, and drama and everything else that, you know, imagine NBC where, you know, every 30 minutes, there's 30 seconds of, of an attractive woman who comes on and says some bullshit. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to use the word bull. Yes, you are, but you're describing NBC to a T. <laughs> right, but it's, yes, maybe. But yeah, No, no, I'm not, okay. I know, I know you quip, um, but, but, but yeah, but NBC and, and, and Channel One have their distinct differences in that the, 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 the stuff that is, disseminated in between the entertainment is profoundly propagandistic, right? Not not vaguely, not corporately, but state propaganda. And it goes on for years and years and years. And so the, the, the nation, it's not that they have suddenly realized that Putin is good or that NATO is the aggressor or that uh, Ukraine is, is whatever, whatever their current mindset is. Uh, there, there's a couple of seeds of the new stuff that, that really was brought in just to make the war possible, like this emphasis on Nazism, right? Like that, I don't, I don't believe that was something that was pervasive for, for years and years. That was something that they spun up. But, but it was easy to add that component because the hints of it have been in the air for a long time. And in general, the, the, the stage had been set for many years that the West is what their problem is, right? That all of their internal problems are the West's fault. And every time there's a new sanction, every time that there's a new action that, that, that somehow undermines their well-being, um, which, which, you know, we, we actually do undertake because we have to deal with them as, as, as an aggressive uh, negative factor in the world, uh, those are taken out of context and shown as evidence for, well, this is, you see, this is, this is what, what choice do we have but to uh, you know, stand athwart this, uh, you know, our, our righteous uh, mother Russia's you know, blah, 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 right? I mean, so, so this is, um, yeah, it's not new and, and it's not exclusively news. Like that's really the, the key to, to the difference, the way that I understood it. I, I'm not sure how you understood it, but that, that was my revelation was that this is something that it's not like on, uh, in early February, Putin decided to start to lie to the Russians. Like that's not how it works. I guess in that vein, I remember when I read your piece um, on the war in the bulwark, you were putting out the thesis that, by the way, I subscribe to, um, but not everybody does. And I'm curious how you see it now, months later, if that's still your conviction or you still see it as the cause that, <clears throat> that Putin sort of had to aggress, invade, which he's done before Ukraine, because Ukraine is becoming this 
<clears throat> very relatable in ethnic cultural terms competition in terms of here's a democracy, here's an independent country, color revolutions, all that history. Um, and so this is something that Putin needs to prevent at his doorstep because this is the opposite of what he wants at home because he needs to maintain power. Um But with what you were saying, with this propaganda building, building on um, over the last longer than eight years, actually, before 2014, and I'm curious what you think about that. He sort of, in my understanding, built a monster because when we're looking at opinion polls as imperfect as they are right now from Levada and others, um, we're seeing that an overwhelming majority, 60, 70, 80% of people genuinely support this war, genuinely support this, this violence and everything that comes with it. They might not see all the atrocities, but, but the idea is there that, that they support it. So, I wonder how you think about these things in terms of the monster that he's built and how how we can tackle that or how that is a, a problem that cannot be overcome anytime soon, despite efforts like Samizdat Online and others. So I actually have a somewhat optimistic point on this, but first I want to, I, I do want to uh, reiterate what I said in my piece because you asked if I continue to believe in it and I do. Uh, but in my piece, I said that the principal reason that uh, Putin needed to invent, invade Ukraine and he needed to do it now uh, was because Ukraine it was, I mean, now it's further, but, but uh, at the time before the invasion, Ukraine was on a fast track to becoming, and I, I use this term very generally, but let's call it Greece, right? And I've got no, no insult to the Greeks, but uh, like not France, not Germany, but, but one of the less powerful and, and established and, you know, places in Europe, but European and, and free and democratic and to some extent, and to a very meaningful extent, law abiding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is something that Russia does not have and Russia cannot have as long as Putin's in power, like Putin's entire uh, magic trick is that everything is beholden to him, right? He doesn't, he can't have a law abiding nation. Um, so, And, and what I said in my piece was that the Russians have been told forever when they've asked, like, why can't we be like, they don't ask, why can't we be more like Germany or like, or, or like France? Because they understand that they're Russian. There's something uniquely, distinctly different about being Russian than it is about being German and French. And so, well, the French can have their France and the Russians are going to just have their Russia. Um, but if Ukraine became even Greece, never mind Belgium, <laughs> um, then there would be no answer to that question. The Russians would turn uh, their heads west and say, what, what, what the heck? Why can't we have that? Like they, they are essentially the same as us, right? We have relatives living there. What, what, if they've set up a thriving democratic law abiding uh, nation, we want that too. And, and, uh, and that would be the end for Putin. So, so he needed to crush them in order to prevent that. And the proof of why I believe that's my thesis there is correct is the, the ferocity with which the Ukrainians have been fighting for what they have managed to etch out for themselves, right? Because you would think from their point of view, if just game theory this out, if they, if they genuinely understood themselves to be vaguely Russian or sort of kind of Russian or were they like, would they, would they jeopardize everything? Would they put all their lives on the line? Would, like, wouldn't like to the average 25 year old Ukrainian who is now, you know, fighting tooth and nail for their freedom, 
wouldn't they say, well, who cares? Like whatever, you know, the, the West or the East, whatever. We, we, we have our, we have what we have as long as I have my piece of bread, uh, you know, and my Netflix subscription, I don't care. Right. Like, so, so the fact that they haven't done that, the fact that it's not irrelevant to them, whether or not they are uh, a Putin acolytes or a thriving Western democracy uh, and the, the, the level to which it matters to them proves to me that I think my thesis is, is correct. But, um, but I'm not a geopolitician, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm operating uh, mostly on what I can read and see and then a, a bunch of gut instinct. So, sorry, I wanted to, so then the, the thing where I'm optimistic, <laughs> is that, that none of that sounds optimistic. Um, the, uh, well, I mean, there is actually, because the optimism is that the, this is a nation that has realized which, which you know, w- w- where the sun ought to rise and, and they're heading in that direction. But, uh, so th- the Russian population two points you said you said you know the polling shows and any to me any sentence that starts with polling shows in russia is like masha gessen said it best when she was i believe on sam harris's podcast where she said like the the notion of like what do the russians believe the the russians are saddled with some some reality and they can't see past or through or around that reality easily most of them uh, most of them are dirt poor right like most people in america don't realize that like I think something like thirty percent of Russians don't have working plumbing, right? Like they use an outhouse for for their bathroom. I, I just drove across America, and there was no place where I did not have a working toilet, even in the most uh, you know remote locations. So like the, I think most Westerners don't understand what it means to be poor by those standards. So they're very poor. They're, they're, they have no uh, you know they have concerns that are very material, immediate concerns. They're not thinking about Ukraine. <laughs> they're not thinking about anything other than you know how do I. Uh, how do I provide for my children and, 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 and have a roof over my head to poll this nation? Like, so, you know, a pollster calls somebody in the middle of Russia and says, what do you think? I mean, most people who know anything are going to be terrified to answer anything realistic because they understand what the punishment is for thinking the wrong thing. And those that don't, those that are willing to tell the truth, they, they're, they're probably living in abject ignorance, right? So, so, so to ask them what they think is, is I, it, there's, it's a little bit meaningless, I think, but let's, but let's take your uh, proposition as it stands and say that 80% of the Russian population believes that there's there's some justification for uh, this war. Um, they believe it because they've been shown Nazis, right? And this is my point of optimism, that their moral compass is still, you know, it still finds true north. And in order for Putin to get them engaged, he had to show them Nazis, right? Like that, that, that that's a lot. I mean, yes, they don't exist. I mean, these Nazis are not a real thing, but... But it says that they that they're driven by the right kind of motivations, right? He didn't he didn't say to them, "Hey, there's a bunch of Jews there. Let's go get them." I mean, Russia is a vehemently anti-Semitic place. That could have been something he could have pulled out of his hat, but he didn't. He had to rely on his old, you know, he, he had to play Stairway to Heaven for them <laughs> to, um, to get motivated. Right? It, it, it had to be something that he knew would uh, would, would engage the, the nation. So, if that's true, then all that needs to happen. For, for this to turn around, and I think Putin understands this, which is why he's so adamantly controlling the content and the media, is enough people need to just simply develop some doubt, right? It's not about changing minds. It's not about convincing anyone of anything. It's just injecting enough uh, reality into their world for them to just say, huh, maybe, what if there aren't Nazis? Like, what what, what are we doing, right? Like, and, and, and that's, I mean, not to say that that's an easy proposition, but that's a much uh, easier lift than, you know, t- taking millions of people and having them actively think something different. Than what I have to say that if I never hear Stairway to Heaven again, I, I, could, I still will have lived a full <laughs> life. 
But if I ever do hear it again, I'll think of it very differently than I have up to this point. <laughs> so at the end there, you also sort of suggested a strategy for cracking open this monolith of uh, propaganda or whatever we want to call it. That's got to be an important challenge for you, not only just to put things out there, but to put the things out there that will get listened to or get read and so on and so forth. Um, be interested in your thinking about, uh, you know, your content moderation strategy, if that sounds like such a horrible phrase, but, uh, you know, uh, what sorts of things will match up with the, the cracks and the weaknesses in the Putin story? Well, I, I think we're reading tea leaves, but um, my understanding is that at the very beginning of, uh, of the war, when Arnold Schwarzenegger released his uh, missive, was impactful and that people really related to it and that really uh, pierced that, uh, you know, that armor uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, and so uh, not that we can produce this kind of content, and I don't have... Uh, Arnold's uh, phone number in my Rolodex. But uh, our strategy is, uh, depending on how quickly we can really ramp up, to bring in uh, all of the Russian dissident performers who are currently blacklisted, right? Because th there's, again, along with all of the media, there's also uh, tons of uh, to totally innocent uh, celebrities, right? People with millions and millions of followers, poets and singers and comedians and writers and, and actors, and just people who fell afoul of of, of Putin's ire by deeming, you know, it relevant to say maybe, maybe it's not a great idea to invade, you know, Ukraine. Like they they they, they uttered that once, and now they're um, they're they are essentially blacklisted. So uh, we would love to gather them all under our roof and have them uh, entertain the masses, as it were, uh, from our podium. And um, uh, and you know, everybody's welcome. Anybody who's hearing this, and you have a following, and you and and, and you're no longer welcome in your homeland, whatever that is, uh, please please contact us. Um, and so, basically, um, we would implement the same strategy that that Putin has, right? Like as I said, it's an effective strategy. Uh, we would provide entertaining and engaging and positive content. Uh, not all of it political. In fact, most of it not political. But there would be enough in there where if somebody just decided to use our services as a place to come and be informed and entertained, they would get both. And then uh, potentially they would, you know, have some, some amount of new doubt about what uh, reality is. And um, th th the worst that can happen is nothing, right? I mean, I, I feel like th this is, uh, we're going to give this a whirl. And if, if the Russian audience continues to be entrenched fully in, in their delusion, then, well, that's where they are now. So it's, it's the, no, no harm will have been done. So um, if there are no other conclusions or, or shout outs from Giselle, um, I'm going to try to wrap this up. Um, before we do, I guess there here's a um, shout out to Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you listen to this or your people, please contact them. Is that online? Um, we want to support it as much as we can. And, um, and we will include links in the show notes for sure. Exactly. Um, and so a big thanks to you, Yevgeny Simkin, for joining us, um, helping us make sense of how the internet works <laughs> and how, um, how we can make the internet work better and freer in, um, in Russia by supporting um, Samistad online and, um, and supporting dissidents and people who've just 
randomly got blacklisted, but can make uh, can make a difference in in Russia and beyond. So from me, Yulia Zhoja, and my friend Giselle Donnelly, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. The Eastern Front's newsletter is now live. You can sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive a bi-weekly update of newly released episodes, exclusive Q&A with our hosts, and to stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and articles from us on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. And of course, you can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, please get in touch with us as always on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you. And until next time, goodbye.